pray. Glorious Father, where would we be without the incarnation of the eternal Son of God? Lost in our sins is where we would be. We thank you that in the fullness of time, the promised Messiah came to pay that terrible price to redeem a fallen race. And we thank you that Jesus, the second Adam, was able to accomplish what the first Adam failed to do. And we will live forever for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, in his righteousness alone. We thank you for your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and your Holy Spirit illumines our understanding, teaches us what we ought to know about you. Be with us tonight, O Spirit of God, and teach us. For the glory of Jesus, amen. We are in John chapter 12, no, I'm sorry, John 13, beginning at verse 1, and this evening we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses of of John 13. Now we need to keep in mind that this is Jesus' last week on earth in his present form. We have learned that many of the Jews and the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of the Jewish nation, the text of Scripture says they acknowledged that Jesus had done many signs in their presence. And what good did it do for them? None. Despite all these signs, it did nothing. And remember, what's the... What is the theme verse of the book of John, given by John, in John chapter 20, verse 31, that many, these signs, many signs that Jesus did, and some of those are not even recorded. For what purpose? That you may believe that he is the Christ, and that in believing you have eternal life. That's the whole theme of the book of John. He did all these signs. He did nothing to change the attitude of many of these Jews, particularly the the, the religious leading body of of Israel. And what did the scripture say? Jesus says, there's a reason why you don't see. And the reason is because they willingly would not um, believe in Jesus. And this willingness or unwillingness to believe in Jesus was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which said, In seeing, you would not see. In hearing, you would not hear. And we were told, we looked at the passage last week in Isaiah chapter 6, that even Isaiah in his calling, his calling was to, as he says, the word of God says, to a rebellious people. That's what Israel was. And we've looked at multiple passages along our study of John, and just in the last chapter, John 12, verse 40, we saw that God had hardened their hearts lest they would hear and lest they would see. And again, we got to understand what it means when it says God hardens men's hearts. He is not the author of evil. He is not the one who puts it in men's hearts to reject the gospel message. What it means is that When God hardens them, he gives them over. It is a judicial judgment of God upon those who have willingly chosen not to believe. And the scripture makes it very clear that they have hardened their own hearts, just like Pharaoh hardened his heart. The children of Israel in the wilderness hardened their hearts and For 40 years, God says, I gave you miracle after miracle, and yet you wouldn't believe. So Jesus makes it clear that to reject him is to reject the Father because he came from the Father. Now, as we look at chapter 13, verse 1 talks about that the Passover feast was at hand. Now let's understand, and understanding the Passover is important to understand 
this section in John chapter 13. What was the Passover? Well, the Passover commemorates Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. And you know that one of the, the last plague that came upon Egypt, pronounced by Pharaoh himself, who thought he was going to be, he was going to kill Israel's firstborn. And Moses says, you just pronounced the, basically the curse upon your own people. No, it's the firstborn of Egypt that's going to die. And God instructed Moses, he says, have, kill the lamb, put the blood on the, the posts here, here, and here. That would be your doorposts. And when the angel of death <clears throat> comes to Egypt, it will pass over every house that has that blood on it. And so we know <clears throat> that in, in Jewish tradition, a hymn of praise was sung during the Passover meal. And they sang what is known as the Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L. And the Hallel was Psalm 118, verses 21 and 22. This is what the text says. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. That was a typical hymn sung at a Passover meal. Very appropriate, isn't it? Because we know from the New Testament that, for example, from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and from 1 Peter 2, 7, that Jesus is said to be what? The cornerstone over which men particularly the Jewish nation, would stumble. Now, and Paul explains very forthrightly in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he says that Christ is our Passover sacrificed for us. You remember what John the Baptist said when he was baptizing in the Jordan and Jesus was coming to be baptized by John John looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we know that from the New Testament that our sins, in order to be forgiven, in order to escape, uh, they have to be forgiven in order for you and I to escape judicial judgment of eternal death. And that comes only by the shedding of Jesus' blood, right? So in our text here in John 13, Jesus is before the, it says, look, look what it says. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world. Now, <clears throat> remember, there were many times that the Jews sought to um, arrest Jesus, to stone him, to throw him off a cliff. And what, what did the scripture say? He just kind of eluded them. And the, and the scripture says, because it was not his hour. It was gonna be an appointed time. We know that uh, Jesus knew that his hour basically had arrived and it was imminent and let's take note that Jesus always knew what his purpose was in coming into this world several times Jesus told his disciples look I've and especially in Matthew 16 he says look the son of man's got to go to Jerusalem he will be delivered up uh, by the Jews by the scribes and the Pharisees, and he will be killed, but then he will be raised from the dead. He kept telling them that. And that's when Peter, you know, says, no, nope, we're not going to let you, let it happen to you, Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Because you, what your attitude is, not the will of God. He knew he was going and had to die. Now, though Jesus will be delivered up and killed, 
We're told, if you remember in our study through John 10, what is Jesus called? He's called the good shepherd. And Jesus there in John 10 verse 11 says, the good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. So it was predestined. Jesus' whole, we looked at Acts 2.23. Um, it won't hurt us. Keep your hand there in John, but just turn over quickly to Acts 2.22 and 23. Shows you that the whole humiliating act of Jesus dying on the cross was foreordained. Acts 2, 22 and 23. Men of Israel listened to the words, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In John 13, 1, we're told that Jesus loved his own in this world to the end. That's what the text says. And all of this ministry that Jesus had with his disciples was an act of love for three years. Now remember in 1 John, of course John the apostle who wrote this gospel is the one who wrote the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In 1 John 4.10, that great passage which says, herein is the love of God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation we have said is a biblical word. It occurs four times in the New Testament. What it means, it is the satisfaction of divine wrath or justice by means of a bloody substitute. So Jesus is the propitiatory sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. So now during his earthly ministry, Jesus, he called the 12 to be in fellowship with him. He spoke with them regularly. He showed them uh, many times. He allowed them to speak very freely and frankly to him. Any questions that they had? As you read the New Testament, you realize very quickly that the disciples were weak and very defective, were they not? And we're going to see at the Last Supper, just how defective they really were. And we see that uh, <clears throat> Jesus often, uh, he would reprove them, but he never ceased to love them, and he always was seeking to take care of his, his disciples, the 12. So in loving his own, in loving his disciples, we see that even Jesus displayed a love for his enemies. Now, how so? Well, he showed love to the foremost enemy of it that he had. And guess who that was? Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot. Who was Jesus, who was called to be one of the twelve, who was a close companion for him, for, with him for three years. As we know from John, <clears throat> he was the treasurer of the disciples and would often pilfer from the money box, we are told. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' love for all the other disciples was a different type of love that, than that was displayed towards Judas because he's loving his enemy when he loved his disciples. Now, <clears throat> we know that his, the 11 were called his sheep, but Judas will prove to be what? He will prove to be a goat for whom Jesus did not die for Judas. Now, without going into much detail of the Reformed doctrine of limited atonement, it is necessary, I think it will be helpful to understand this section, just to make 
some comments here. Now, what do we mean by limited atonement? <clears throat> it means that Jesus, his death was particular. It was for the elect of God. It was for the sheep. It is not for the goats. Now, those of you that may be writing notes, write this down. There is no one in hell for whom Jesus died. Not one. Who goes to hell after all? Those who are not of God's elect, according to the word, the word of God. Uh, those who have chosen not to believe in Jesus are the ones who are in hell. Remember John three thirty four. when we were in John 3, here's what John three thirty four says. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So everybody who is in hell has the wrath of God, not the love of God, abiding on them. Now one might say, what about John the Baptist? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It says the world. Well, it's important to understand, how does the Bible use the word world? Well, it uses it in several senses. First of all, it doesn't always mean everyone without exception. And we can prove that just in John 12, verse 19. Here's how we can prove that already. Remember the rulers, when Jesus, all these people were coming to Jesus, they were hearing about Lazarus. A lot of people said, we got to come to him. We got to come to Jesus. And it says that the Sanhedrin met and said, what are we going to do about this? And here's what it said in verse 19. The whole world follows him. Now, we know from that very statement, well, that can't be everybody in the whole world. Guess who's making the statement and who's not following Jesus, who's part of the world, but the ruling body, the Sanhedrin. So it doesn't mean always everybody without exception. So what does it mean? It means men. It means the humanity. It means those, as Revelation 5 talks about, that Jesus' death was for people out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every nation. It means it's, it's worldwide. He has his elect and every single nation on the face of the earth, every language group, there is some of the elect of God. And that's what that means. So just keep in mind, the reason there is no one in hell for whom Jesus died, not, it was John Owen who brings this out. Probably the greatest book on limited atonement ever written was by John Owen, the Puritan, called The Death of Death in the death of Christ. It's a big work. It is a classic. It is the definitive work. And it was Owen and others who said, not one drop of Jesus's blood is shed in vain. Not one drop. In other words, the death of Jesus doesn't just make possible salvation. No, it actually accomplishes salvation for whom it was intended. And it means for those, uh, it would forgive the sins for those for whom he shed that blood. If a person is in hell, guess what? Their sins are not forgiven, right? That's why they're there. It's because their sins are not forgiven. If their sins are forgiven, that means Jesus died for them. They have believed in him. That just demonstrates they were God's elect from the foundation of the world. So Jesus' death accomplishes salvation. You know, <clears throat> when I went to, to Reform Seminary, I was just a budding, I guess, Calvinist. I, I could not say I was full-blown. I was still learning. And you know, one of the things, you know, in the 
quote the five points of Calvinism. The one that hangs so many people up, supposedly, is the fourth one on limited atonement. You got TULIP, that's the, an acronym, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. People say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, I'm a four-point. In limited atonement, I wasn't convinced of it when I went to seminary. You know when I had the epiphany that it was true? It was at the pool table at the, rec- the recreation room on, on the campus. <laughs> I had a class in which we were studying the book on on Jesus on the, uh, by Leon Morris on the apostolic preaching of the cross, deal with all these words about the atonement. And as I was studying that and remembering some class notes, I was sitting there shooting pool and all of a sudden I go, I see it, I see it. <laughs> Finally, I understand that Jesus' his atoning work actually saves people. That means it can only be for the elect. How come I didn't see that before? Well, we know that um, that Jesus, he loved his own to the end. We're told here in John 13, 2, it says, and during the supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now, what have we seen already in John's gospel, especially in John 6, 71? It says, Jesus says, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and it says the 12, and yet one of you is a devil. And the Bible says he was referring to Judas Iscariot who would betray him. So, guess what? Jesus knew all along from the beginning and deliberately chose Judas Iscariot knowing, knowing he would eventually betray him. He chose him because he was going to fulfill prophecy as we're going to see. Now we learn from from Luke 22. Turn over to to Luke 22 and look at verses 1 through 6. Later in Luke 22 is Luke's version of the Last Supper. But in Luke 22, verses 1 through 6, we read, Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who is called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve, and he went away in disgust with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, and he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart uh, from the multitude. What we see here is that the die had already been cast. Judas had already made arrangements. By the time the Passover meal was going to be in, uh, take place, he had already decided he was going to betray Jesus and I'm just looking for the right moment to do it. So at the, uh, at the Last Supper, by the way, Judas partook of the Last Supper. He partook of that communion meal. And which we're going to see just taking a meal. We, we ought to learn a lesson from that. Just taking it. There's nothing magical about taking that meal. There's nothing magical what we do every Sunday morning. There's got to be faith there for it to be effectual. 
So <clears throat> we're told in our text here that, turn back to John 13, uh, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, verse three, he had come forth from God. He rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded about himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel, which he was girded. So what, what is this washing the feet all about? Well, first of all, you know, when, when, when the Jews, when they dined, what was the, uh, the area of Palestine like? It was a semi-arid uh, uh, area, was it not? You wore sandals, you're going to get dirty. It was customary when you came to dinner, you washed your feet. The Passover meal was being prepared, so it's customary for there to be water there and for somebody to wash people's feet. Now, in a typical household, this was a menial task usually performed by servants. The master of the house would not be washing someone's feet. It was a servant who would do this. And we're told here in the upper room, one of the disciples, what should have happened is that one of the disciples should have initiated the washing of their feet. But after a while, Jesus was, he's the one that gets up and starts washing their feet. Not one of the disciples who should have, but he does. Now we know from <clears throat> Luke 22 that Jesus uh, had sent Peter and John ahead on the day of unleavened bread to prepare for the Passover meal. And there, if you were to look at that text, we don't need to turn to it per se. We're told in Luke 22, verse 10, he said, you're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water. So bring the water. Why? Well, to wash men's feet. That's why you would bring a picture of water. We're told in John 13, 5, that Jesus poured the water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, what was he doing? He was serving in the capacity of a menial slave. That's what he was doing. And... <clears throat> Jesus is about to give the greatest example of humility and service. And guess whose feet got washed with all the others? Judas's feet got washed as well. Judas not only will eat the meal, he will have his feet washed by Jesus as well. Now, Peter... When the text says that when Jesus arrived to Peter, Peter goes, no, you're not going to wash my feet. He didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. He might have been sensing, you know, maybe uh, the fact that he should have been doing it. Well, we're not going to let you do it, Jesus. And what was Jesus' response to him? We'll, ta we'll take a look. Uh, <clears throat> Jesus said to him, verse 10, well, no, he says, uh, and he came, verse six, he came to Simon Peter. The Lord said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. If I don't wash your feet, Peter, you have no part with me. Well, at that point, Peter goes, then wash my feet, wash my head, wash everything, Jesus, if that's the way it's got to be. Now, <clears throat> what we learn from this 
is that all those who Christ owns, who he came to save, he will justify them and he will sanctify them. And this is symbolized by his washing of their feet. Now, in this regard, Jesus says, you can't partake of my glory if, uh, unless you are cleansed. And in other words, you've got to have my righteousness given over to you, my spirit, my grace given to you. Now, it was a custom in Jewish households that once you had your, um, once you were bathed, oftentimes people cleansed themselves uh, before they came to a dinner. But if you went out, you wouldn't always have to come back and be completely bathed. You just had your feet washed. And Jesus says, not all of you. Look what he says. Verse 10. Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Not all of you. Verse 11 clarifies who he meant by not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Here we have a, a, a great teaching on that great doctrine of justification primarily in sanctification. And I think it would be to understand what is going on in this, on this foot washing. It's helpful for us to understand that uh, of its spiritual symbolism and what it's all about, it would be helpful for us to look at the confession of faith on the chapter on justification. So in the back of your Trinity hymnal, you've got a copy, or there you have uh, the confession, and we're going to take a look. It's not long, but it's very instructive for us. Turn to chapter 11 in the confession. I forget what page it is there in the back of the Trinity hymnal. I'll give you a moment to get there. What was Jesus seeking to ultimately teach them? Now remember Jesus says, you don't understand now what I'm about to do, but you will understand. You will understand what what I was doing. All right, chapter 11, justification. Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them, as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God." Faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied by all those other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice, that's propitiation, by the way, in their behalf, yet in as much as he was given by the Father for them 
and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins, rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they're not justified until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. God does continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified, and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance." The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all respects, one and same with the justification of believers in the New Testament. So Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. But someone, once they are cleansed, all they have to do is get their feet washed. In other words, sanctification takes place. So what we see here is that Jesus says, you are clean, the 11 of you, but one of you isn't. Judas, the one who betrayed him, is not clean. Now, wait a minute. He had his feet washed. He ate with Jesus the supper. And yet, He's a devil. Jesus said he was a devil from the beginning. His feet cleansed, but he's not cleansed. Again, we're not talking about magic rituals. We're talking about an act of faith that trusts in the Lord. That's what we're talking about. Now, take a look at verses 12 through 15. And so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've just done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus says, do you really know what I've done for you? I've given you an example by what I've done that you might understand fully. Later on, you'll fully understand. Jesus' act of washing was a humble act on his part It was an essential part of his humiliation and that foot washing was a symbol. His act of washing their feet was a symbol of his humiliation. Why he came into this world. Remember, who's the one who normally washes feet in the household? The servant is the one who normally does it. Turn over to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians 2, actually we're going to back up to verse 3. 
Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that means to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, meaning a slave, and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When Jesus would wash their feet, he would wash away physical filth and that washing away of physical filth was a symbol of Christ, basically his suffering for his entire life on earth whereby he not only atones for the guilt of his people, but he also merits salvation for his people by his humiliating acts. And so he says, do do you really realize what I've just done for you? I've set you an example. And the disciples really did need this. They really needed help. Now, you know that all the gospel accounts don't always, and John doesn't mention what we're going to look at in Luke. Luke brings something out about what happened at the Last Supper. John doesn't even, for whatever reason, doesn't mention. I want you to turn over, turn back to, to, to Luke 22, to an incredible thing that transpires at the Last Supper. Luke 22, and look at verses 20, well, we're going to look specifically at verses 23, Four through 27, but I, I want to back up because Jesus, in Luke's version, has already instituted the Lord's Supper, the new covenant, in verses 19 and following. And in verse 21, uh, 21 it says, Behold, the hand of one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. That's predestination, obviously. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And Mark says it would have been better for him never to have been born. Now, verse 23 they began discussing among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this. They don't even know who, that it's, that's Judas. They had no idea. In fact, some of them are saying, is it me, Jesus? Am I going to be the one doing it? It never crossed their minds. It was Judas Iscariot. He had pulled the as a, I guess the saying, pull the wool over their eyes. He was that good of a faker. And, but notice what happens after the conversation. This is at the Last Supper. Look at the argument that broke out among the disciples. This is incredible. Look at verse 24, Luke 22. And there was a, a, arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. 
but not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Imagine at the Last Supper, that argument, I'm greater. Let me just put it in perspective. It'd be like Aubrey saying, I'm the greatest. Jeff says, no, you're not. I'm the greatest. David says, no, no, you're not. I'm the greatest. And then Jason pipes up, no, I'm greater than all of you. And this is going on at the last table, last supper. If there were ever a group of men who needed a lesson in humility, it was, it was the 11 disciples. And Jesus says, do you not know what I've just done to you? Then go and do likewise. Do as I've done. Be a servant like I've been a servant. Because without me being a servant, you would perish in your sins. Because that's how you've become clean. Because I was a servant who became obedient to death, even the death on a cross, to deliver you, to cleanse you from the filthiness of your sins. You know, one of the things that, and, and so Jesus, if you turn back to John 13, Jesus has to rebuke them. He admonishes them. You call me a teacher, Lord, you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord, the teacher, washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should serve, should do as I did to you. Now, obviously, we, we cannot atone for each other's sins. So we can't identify being an example in that sense. But in, in terms of being the servant and being humble, like Jesus, the greatest example of a servant, yes, we can be like that, and we're commanded to be like that. And as Paul brings out, as we looked at in Philippians 2, put the interests of others ahead of your own. You know, pride is a very terrible sin. It really is. And one of the greatest lessons that you and I can learn in life is to learn humility, to walk, to think humbly, to walk humbly, to put the interests of others ahead of our own, to think about our actions and how they impact other people. You know, let, let's face it. We like to talk about ourselves, don't we? <laughs> we are our own favorite subject. And to think about others doesn't come naturally. And it's difficult even for those of us that have been saved, who've been justified, who've been sanctified. We still have to learn to think about, well, let me think about my husband or my wife. Let me think about my children. Let, let, let me think about my neighbor, what my actions may do. I, I need to think about other people. Remember how Jesus said all the commandments can be summarized in this? Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says the two greatest commandments, Jesus said the greatest is love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says those two can be summarized in Galatians 5 into one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. You obviously love yourself Learn to put others ahead of yourselves. That is not easy. It isn't. But it is necessary if we're going to grow.
in the Christian life. Jesus said, I gave you an example, now go out and do likewise. You know, someone has once said, we are never more like Jesus when we love one another by humbling ourselves to serve other people and esteem them higher than ourselves. We are never more like Jesus when we do that. And that's why the scripture, you read through the Proverbs, just sometime look up in, in your concordance how many times humility and pride is mentioned in the Proverbs. Many, many times. And as Judy Rogers would, uh, in my devotions with my wife, we would just read through the Bible. We happened to be in Proverbs. We just started. We were reading Proverbs 6 about the, the lying tongue and all that God's ha- what God hates. And I turned to my wife and said, you know, somebody ought to write a song like that. <laughs> and we knew that Judy Rogers had written that great song, you know, on that. It's wonderful. And <clears throat> we need to be humble, put up the interests of others Head of our own. You know, in verse 18 of John 13, Jesus uh, makes it clear. He says, verse 17, if you do these things, you are blessed. I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted his heel against me. Oh, y'all are blessed and y'all are chosen, but one of you's not. It's Judas. Now, Jesus quotes a psalm. I want us to turn to turn to the psalm that Jesus just quoted. Turn over to Psalm 41. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, Jesus has not yet revealed who it is is going to betray him. And it's still not revealed because the disciples haven't figured it out. And Jesus will finally say, well, the one who dips his morsel with me. And then Jesus will turn, you know, later on to Judas's What you must do, go do quickly. Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9. There in John, recorded there in John 13. You know, though Judas was chosen to be an apostle, he was not chosen in a saving sense, we know. As I said earlier, Jesus always knew that Judas was going to be the one who would betray him. And to show the reprehensibleness of Judas' action, we ought to read Psalm 55 to see just how reprehensible what Judas Iscariot did. Psalm 55, verses 12 through 14 For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, he who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. Now, David was talking about Ahithophel here, 
but just how tragic it is for a close friend to betray you, the backstabber, the one you least suspect. And Jesus says, what what an incredible mirage that Judas did. He was the friend of Jesus. You got to remember, when Jesus sent out the 12 to preach in the cities of Israel, it says he sent the 12. Guess who preached along with the other 11? Judas. Guess who participated in healing people? Judas. Casting out demons? Judas. It may give uh, illumination to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. He says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me in that day, did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many miracles? And Jesus says, I never knew you. And when Jesus says, I never knew you, it's knowing in an intimate sense. Depart from me, you lawless ones, Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, his familiar friend who walked with him, who preached with him, who participated in all these things was Judas. And yet, he was a devil from the beginning, Jesus said. What does it mean as we bring this to a close? John 13, 19, from now on, Jesus says, I'm telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now, Jesus is telling them about Judas Later on, it will be revealed that it is Judas. Remember, when Jesus, after praying, goes out, Judas has already made the deal with the Sanhedrin. They bring the guards and they arrest Jesus. Remember, they didn't know who this Jesus is. And Judas says, when I kiss him, that's him. And he comes, just imagine that, coming and kissing Jesus on the cheek to betray Jesus the Son of God, the most despicable act of betrayal in the history of man or ever in humanity of what Judas did. But did it take take Jesus by surprise? Well, of course not. It was predetermined. I'm going to go as it has been determined, but woe to the man who betrays him. So when, when Judas betrays Jesus, imagine, imagine the impact. And Jesus, Jesus foresees this as the impact that that would have on the, the rest of the disciples. We can't believe it. He, he did this to Jesus. It would have a tendency to kind of sh- rock your faith. And Jesus says, look, I'm just preparing you for when it happens. Don't be surprised. Don't let it catch you off guard. Because verse 31, you're going to be the ones that I send out to preach the gospel to save sinners. So he's, he's preparing them. He doesn't want them to lose faith. He says, Judas may have lost his, but don't lose, you don't lose yours. You need to be mindful why I called you in the first place. Remember he called you, he says, Lord, several of these were fishermen by trade. And he comes to you like Peter and Andrew and says, look, I will teach you how to be fishers of men. And Jesus is preparing them to be fishers of men. He wants them to be disciple, uh, to be his ambassadors. And remember what an ambassador is. An ambassador speaks with authority of the one whom he represents. The ambassador does not add to or take away what it was told to him to speak. 
All the role of an ambassador is, is to say what the king wants you to say. No more, no less. That is your duty. So what is the duty of a preacher? Every preacher, just say what Jesus said. Just preach the word. And when you preach that word, anybody who rejects what you preach has rejected me. That's how important it is. And that's the task I've called you to do in this world. And so go out and do it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We stand amazed at the love of Jesus. We stand amazed of his love for us that he left the glory of of heaven with you, Father, to come in this sin-ridden world. And at this time of year, we think about the birth, to be born in a stable, in a cattle trough. What humiliating for the eternal Son of God. His very birth, oh Lord, was an act of humiliation. The moment he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, his humiliation began. Oh, Lord, we we stand amazed at the love of Jesus. Lord, help us to love him more and more every day and do what he said. Learn to put others ahead of ourselves. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.